Tuzman and you're on equal footing. Come down the rabbit hole with me this week. We're talking about wrist candy, wrist porn, wrist capital, the peculiar industry of the ultra luxury timepiece collectors, connoisseurs, dealers. You hear about it in popular culture. You know, when I was pre gaming for this show, it's looking up songs you know we we integrate music into the show each week on bling and and ultra luxury timepieces and there were dozens of dozens of particularly hip-hop songs about that but actually from all genres even country music it's a part of our culture it, we see these extraordinary timepieces these high-end watches rolex Audemars Piguet, richard Mille, fp journe iwc breitling breguet etc on the wrists of actors and athletes and business tycoons and we think that it's about bling about showing uh status and wealth and kind of i made it but is that really what it's about this is a quick evolving industry it has some really peculiar aspects to it which we're going to talk about tonight with our wonderful deeply experienced and interesting guests. We have some James Bond types on tonight on Equal Footing. Let me start alphabetically, so uh, no no order other than that. David Salamanca. David Salamanca is the owner of Salamanca's Watches. He's based in Miami. He started his career in this industry in Philadelphia. He's from Colombia. Shout out. I'm half Colombian as well. David migrated to the United States in 2000. And he had to learn to speak and read English in six months. From his humble beginnings, he's gone on to build a business in both real estate and in horology. You'll hear this word tonight, horology in the watch industry. Uh, it comes from horos, which I believe is time um, in the ancient Greek. And David uh, enjoys spending family time. I know from knowing David for years that that's the axis of, of his life, his uh, two beautiful young son, sons, Paul and Leo, and his wife, Lauren. David is an avid watch connoisseur, and he's constantly expanding his taste, his collections, his points of view on the uh, industry. If you want a great trusted watch advisor, especially if you're in Miami, if you're coming from the Latin American markets, David also works a lot with Asia, definitely look up David Salamanca. It's easy to find online, Salamanca's watches. So welcome to Equal Footing, David. Thank you so much, Khalil. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So, uh, Steve Halleck, and remember to put it on, uh, there we go. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Because I'm in studio in New York, and this is one of the first shows we've had in quite a while where everybody's on the phone in different cities. We got that background noise, um, and hopefully we'll, we'll make it work. Steve Halleck. Steve Halleck has become a, a friend and a partner in, uh, in the industry or a, a partner in giving advice, I should say. I've been involved in this industry for some time, uh, starting as a collector and then also on some of the financing side. And Steve Halleck is really a, um, a giant in, in the industry, particularly in the independent horology, the independent brands, the Erverks and the MBNFs. 
and the Karivutalainens and the Gronfelds and the others that don't as much don't get as much press in popular culture, but are really uh, there's a massive boom going on in independent, very almost uh, artistic. Uh, Horology. And Steve's been in the industry for about two decades. He actually helped launch the brand MBNF. He now runs the well-regarded selling as well as kind of uh, horological advice site, TikTalking.com. That's T-I-C-K-T-O-C-K-I-N-G, TikTalking.com, which is actually one of the world's largest dealers of particularly independent, as I've mentioned, pre-owned watches. And we're going to get into the pre-owned market, what's new, what's gray, etc., and uh, Steve is known for his fun videos and podcasts teaching people about the world of independent watchmaking. You can find his channel on YouTube at uh, TikToking. And Steve lives in L.A. He also has two sons, but he's got you. Uh, he's one up on you, David. He's got a third due this week. And he's also an amazing oil painter. And, uh, and Steve, welcome to Equal Footing. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we, we've got a third guest who we're going to uh, introduce in the second segment as a little bit of a surprise. He's, uh, he's uh, quietly going to be listening in. And uh, for many of you that are, are listening that might have some exposure to the industry, you'll recognize him at least by his uh, moniker. Okay. So, Steve and David, first of all, someone listening who doesn't care about watches, if they do care about watches, are primarily oriented towards what can it do for me functionally, your your Apple Watch, or maybe what we call in the industry a tool watch, something you might do scuba diving with or mountain climb with or whatever, and have never thought about um, buying into a high-end watch. However you want to define that, because it depends on someone's view of that. A high-end watch should be defined as spending $1,000 on a very well-crafted uh, American-made watch, all the way to... $500,000, even a million dollars in some of these very artisanal kind of specific uh, Swiss-made uh, pieces. But, Steve, you, I'm sure you, you have many associates in your life who, who just have no idea what you're doing down this rabbit hole of <laughs> high-end watches. Why, why should a listener care about tonight's discussion if they're not into these watches? Yeah, I actually, uh, none of my general sort of real-life friends are into watches or even luxury um, much at all. Um, however, I have found throughout my career that people tend to have a natural affinity for uh, especially mechanical timekeepers. I don't know. There's something about the sort of beating heart of it or the measurement of time, which we're all subject to, uh, or, or just how small and precious they are. Uh, something about it really connects with human beings in general. Uh, so I do find that, that most people are interested uh, as well in the fact that, that in, in this sort of area of it, you're dealing with the tip, tip, tip top of artisanal talent in the world, uh, sort of handmade beauty and old world craft. Uh, so, so these tend to be things that draw people in regardless of whether this is something that they would ever uh, have the means to or consider purchasing. Okay, so let's take the advocacy position that these are just 
if you're not if you don't have the artistic appreciation, you're not a, a true connoisseur and collector. These are really, really expensive, not so necessary uh, items that uh, function more as they often do in popular culture as a status symbol. David, is there another reason why we should care about this? Is this has this become an asset class? Are people buying these pieces that actually are not collectors at all? That's a great question. I believe a lot of it is um, a status symbol. I do believe, uh, you know, in my experience, most of my clients that come to me are buying these watches, one, to have an asset, and number two, um, to demonstrate a level of success. And is there an element, there's been a lot of talk about alternative asset classes, and I noticed, Steve, I think it was in the last year or two, you began to accept cryptocurrency, for example, at least Bitcoin, uh, to for your customers uh, around the world. Are people, are people buying these high-end pieces as a means of like storing value, like you buy a gold bar or diamonds and put it in a in a safe, or am I off base? I think that um, there's always a level uh, of at least some sort of store of value to the jewelry and watch industry, um, and and how much that influences buying decisions tends to sort of like go up and down like a sine wave over time, depending on the macro conditions. Uh, but certainly there's a big difference between, uh, you know, at least for most people, between uh, buying and drinking a $20,000 bottle of wine versus buying a $20,000 watch. Uh, there, there is always this idea that there is some value there to be recaptured uh, should it ever be necessary. Meaning you down you down the wine and it's done. The watch you buy because you love and as David just articulated, you may want as a status symbol. Someday you resell. Maybe you don't resell it at a at a profit, but you recoup some part of your value. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the area of the industry that I'm in uh, sort of has less of the status symbol thing going on, and it tends to be a little bit more nerdy, geeky. Um, just uh, really want the object, but kind of nobody in the world really knows what they are. Uh, but the, the the financial point remains that a smart buyer uh, can uh, sort of relatively accurately predict his uh, largest potential downside and uh, even has proven to have some upside in these things uh, over time. Let's dig in a little bit more on that because you are, are implying that you and David are in different parts of the industry. And I think there's some, some truth to that based on my understanding of your respective business activities. So what is what is the high-end watch that you're trafficking in, David? <laughs> I don't mean that pejoratively. What are, the, what are the brands for someone who's not exposed to this industry? Where are you operating in the industry? Sure. So I have the pleasure of operating in, in- – mostly all brands, right? So I sell watches from Omega to Patek Philippe, Audemars Piguet to Rolex. Um, I've dabbled with independent brands. It's not my niche, but I have the pleasure of, of, of getting my hands on mostly 
all types of watches because I don't like sort of putting myself in a corner where all I do is just one specific brand. I like to be able to diversify and have an eclectic selection for all the clients that want maybe an IWC or a Rolex or a Paddock or a JLC, whatever it, whatever it is, I can pretty much get my hands on. David, in one of our pregame conversations, you referred to the big three and that you, you, you do a lot of deals in the big Who are the big three in terms of the brands? So so in my experience, uh, the big three would be Paddock Philippe, Audemars Piguet, and Rolex is really what moves the best and for is me. That, is that because those are the most liquid, those are the ones you, you hold as a dealer, you know you're going to be able to sell at some price? There's not going to be a long, you know, there, there's not going to be a problem in terms of the bid-ask in the market? Sure, there's always two sides to that. I, uh, you know, number one, there's a lot of hype being driven behind those three particular brands, um, which therefore causes the value of most not all of the watches in that particular brand to sort of hold steady at a particular value where customers are comfortable buying them and they know that they're buying essentially an asset where you know it's it's they can wear it enjoy it and now the way the market is it could possibly go up or you might be but might be able to sell it and, and break even so those three are definitely being driven by collectors knowing that that's what they want, that's what they see people wearing, and therefore that's what really circulates within the market that I deal with. And Steve, what end of the market are you in? How is that different than what David's talking about? So, yeah, um, of course there's some crossover here and there, and it, it primarily happens uh, on on trades, you know, our customers often own uh, several different kinds of things, and uh, so sure, I may take an, an AP or a Patek or a Rolex on trade or something like that, and then I have to get into the market in that way. Uh, but in general, uh, the things that I specialize in, you can uh, pr- pretty much categorized by brands where the the creator is alive and it's it's basically his name on the dial uh and they tend to be extremely small manufacturers so just to look at orders of magnitude uh rolex makes up around a million watches a year and patek philippe who's considered to be sort of the rolls royce of watches they make around 40,000 watches a year, uh, and some of the brands that I deal with make 10 or 20 watches a year. So you're talking about huge differences in orders of magnitude, and because of that, the the kind of implications of them are different. Uh, They don't have the kinds of marketing budgets. They're not known by or worn by celebrities. Uh, They're generally... The awareness of these things don't penetrate past the kind of craziest of the crazy watch people, uh, and therefore you can spend a lot of money on one, and you can wear it out to dinner, and nobody will know that you spent a lot of money on it, uh, you know, for better or worse. So it, so it tends to draw uh, d- different people for different reasons. Yeah, and for for listeners' education, if they're not involved in this industry, the vast majority of production goes on in Switzerland in in this the high end part of the industry. Although there are certain independent manufacturers elsewhere, uh, like Holland and Germany, uh, and some of the brands that David was talking about are from like 19th century, 
uh, early 20th century, and the brands you're talking about mostly have come into being over the last 30, 40 years. Is, is that right, Steve? Yeah, really, the the Internet has been the game changer in this. It, it allowed these guys to reach customers that they never would have been able to. Uh, so the, the kind of golden age of independent watchmaking has really been since the very late 90s or early 2000s. We're going to take a break and come back talking about wrist capital, and we'll open up the lens a little bit for the general public who might not be geeking out on watches, but might be reading about the explosion in prices. Let me just, before we go to break, give you a couple of reference points. The high end, and this in this, this particular uh, study was defining that as watches that have a $5,000 price tag and above. That industry has been expanding in the new sales arena on a compounded basis for the last 20 years at over 50% per annum. Okay, That's massive growth. The secondary market, and we'll get into the next segment, what's gray, what's secondary, what do these things mean? But after someone's purchased it at a store for the first time and then someone's owned it and then resold it to someone else, that market has been expanding on a year-on-year basis over the last five years at almost twice that rate. It's been almost doubling every year. Now, how can that be? Well, because that's turnover, right? That's that's just more people selling, even selling two or three times the same piece in a year. Something's going on here, guys. We <laughs> get that in the next segment. That's that goes beyond uh, the collection, the collectors. That goes even beyond general economic growth, and I want to get to what that something is and introduce our third special guest. To participate on the show, you can also dial in and talk to Steve Halleck, David Salamanca, and our secret guest coming on the next segment about wrist capital, the peculiar inner workings of the high-end ultra-luxury timepiece industry. Call 718-303-9090. 718-303-9090. Or you can text a question and be patient with, since we have three callers in and we don't have an unlimited board, please be patient if you're calling in and, and holding. I appreciate that. You can also text or WhatsApp, uh, instant message a question to 917-428-4062. That's 917-428-4062. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. Uh, I love that that uh, that song, Madonna. All right, so this is apropos. As many listeners know, we've had a regular sponsor uh, over time here on Equal Footing, and that's Mechanical Art Capital. Mechanical Art Capital offers financing to watch collectors and watch dealers from anywhere in the world. Unlock the cash value of your watch collection or your watch inventory if you're a, a dealer through Mechanical Art Capital's guaranteed buyback contracts. The rates are substantially lower than other financing sources. It's easy collateral finance. You get your cash in one to two days. For more information, call 833-209-0972. That's 833 833- 
209-0972. Operators are standing by. You can also go to mechanicalartcapital.com. And if you mention that you heard about Mechanical Art Capital on equal footing, you get a free appraisal of your collection or inventory that you can use for other purposes like insurance or financing through some other source. So Mechanical Art Capital, that's 833-209-0972. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on You're back on equal footing. I'm Dove Tusman. I've, I've got a little chuckle going on because I've got a, 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 a listener who uh, counts the number of times on the show that I use the word apropos. And I promise you, the person who just sent the text, <laughs> number one, I'm trying not to use it. So there you go. We're joined. Steve Halleck and David Salamanca are talking here on equal footing about the high-end horology industry, horology, the Love of watches, of timepieces. Steve Halleck is the owner and operator of TikToking, which is one of the largest dealers of pre-owned independent watches. David Sal- he's in L.A. David Salamanca is based in Miami. And Salamanca's watches also specializes in pre-owned watches, a little bit more of a tilt towards some of those traditional uh, brands. And as I promised, we are joined by a third guest here in the second segment. Many of you will know him in the industry as Rolex Mike. His actual name is Ziv Tamir. And Ziv, like David, uh, started off uh, as a child of immigrants. David immigrated and started off with nothing. Ziv, interesting life path. He earned his rabbinical degree. And I uh, was a rabbi but decided to pivot, let's say, and, and joined then a large luxury reseller, originally as an errand boy, a runner, at the age of 20, he's been in the industry now for 15 years, and he and his young wife at the time, when he got started, decided to start their business together. So together with his wife, Ziv owns and operates RocksOnClocks.com. They can also be find, t- found at TimepieceBuyers.com, and they're an e-commerce company that buys and sells and trades uh, pre-owned and and, uh, and also unused, but um, let's call them gray market. We'll get to that in a minute. Luxury watches on behalf of clients with a historical specialty in uh, in Rolex. So, Ziv, Rolex Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, very happy to be here. All right, let's shake things up, Ziv, because I know from a previous conversation with you that you think there's more going on here than more people becoming aware of nice watches or people seeing a Richard Meal on the wrist of a of a hip hop artist or a uh, an Audemars Piguet on the wrist of a soccer player. What else is going on that's driving this uh, the expansion of the industry? Yeah, the market's uh, absolutely crazy right now, um, and it's uh, kind of amazing to uh, to be um, in this industry and and watch on a daily basis what's going on. You know, this market, uh, is, and I deal specifically with Rolex, Attic, APs, you know, uh, all the, uh, all the, uh, the famous, Breitling, Cartier, um, and, um, what, what, what I've seen is that, oh, that these watches always go up in value. They've been going up in value for the past, uh, forever since they, uh, you know, for the past, uh, five decades. Um, now, but recently, um, I think that, uh, this, this, uh, the market's going up, uh, so much due to the fact that um, not only that they're a status symbol, because that was always, um, not only because of people, um, it, it, because it's a fun and safe investment, 
but I think it also has to do with the fact that um, people are not valuing uh, regular currency as much anymore. Um, so when people um, look at watches, watches are always looked at as a type of currency in a way. Where you can, you know, you can drop me off in Germany with like with five watches and I'll, and no cash, and I'll just go downtown, flip a few watches, and make it and be perfectly fine for the next year and a half. Um, so you know, there's so watches are really a currency. Um, they're also a long-term investment, and people are looking to invest into into watches that that again, like I said before, are safe. Um, that they can hold, and you know, it's, uh, you know, a lot of investors are not necessarily so comfortable with you know buying cryptocurrency because of the uh, uh, because of what's going on. It's going up, it's going down. But uh, at least watches, even if it goes down, you get to wear it on your wrist until eventually the market, uh, until you know, and you pass it down to the next generation. All right. So, so, um, so Zeb, that, that 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 word investment's a bit controversial in, in the industry. I've been around the industry long enough as a collector and even on the finance side. So, you know, I've heard so many times. You know, you gotta love this piece first and foremost. The dealers will say, "Don't, don't look at it as an investment. <laughs> this is not an investment class." But have things changed, Steve? Is it is it okay for your clients to see this their purchases now as an investment? Well, is it okay? Uh, anybody can do what they want to do. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't advise it. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of uh, what Viv said is certainly true. Um, I, I recently did a, a podcast episode on um, the Cantillon effect, which I don't know. Everybody can look it up, but it's basically uh, as as the money printer goes. Uh, the people to benefit from it the most uh, are uh, the richer people, the people closer to the money printer. Um, and so uh, basically you see inflation first in, uh, in luxury goods and the stuff that rich people buy. Uh, they have a lot more money and they're uh, willing to kind of distribute it. Uh, when Zib says uh, valuing currency less, uh, that's the definition of inflation. Right. So, so it's like we, an inflation uh, hedge. Yeah, well, it's a, it's an inflation hedge. It's that if the currency is worth less, then watches are worth more. Um, it's it's you know you can you can describe the shifting of uh, a numerator and denominator in whatever way you want. Uh, but there's there's certainly some of that going on. Um, do watches always go up? No. Uh, anybody who was around in uh, 2007, 2008 or so uh, knows that that's not the case. Um, and right, the market, anybody that's sorry, Steve, than, just, just for listeners' edification, the market famously crashed across all, pretty much all brands at that time. Oh, across all assets, basically. Right. Um, so, you know, no, no need to single out watches, but certainly uh, it wasn't, uh, it, that was a time where you would have been better off having dollars. Um, and uh, so, look, I think that as they say with most investing, if you if you uh, look around and you don't know who the sucker is at the table, it's you. Um, could could I could I design a portfolio of watches that I think would be a pretty good uh, investment portfolio? Probably. I've never really tried to do it, but I probably could for somebody. Um, but I've been in the business for twenty years, and I've sort of seen it all, and and um, it, it's not. It's not something I would recommend to be taken lightly uh, by an amateur, and I'm all for 
you know, anybody investing in various ways. To me, I see the risk profile of that sort of thinking uh, to be not very good. However, I do think that, that the ability to wear your savings, basically, your watch, has always been underpriced in the market. Um, and so as long as people have money that's sitting in the bank, earning no interest at all, um, it is a decent value proposal to buy a watch with it and have it on your wrist. Right, and, and watches don't and then don't have this. They don't have the same maintenance cost, a, a fraction compared to other uh, kind of rich people's toys, right? Like boats, yeah, and planes, exactly. and cars, and so forth. Insurance costs not, not are lower. Maintenance, right. not as much storage, uh, not as much tax, not uh, registration fees. Uh, they theory, theoretically don't really depreciate in the same way. So there's no, there's no real difference between a one year old watch. And a 10-year-old watch, in fact, sometimes that's preferable uh, versus, you know, a car, which after it gets driven a certain amount of miles is going to be junk no matter what. Uh, so, yeah, there, there are a lot of there, – there's a lot of value just in the use and the ownership that is enough to justify it even if you were to talk about a slight monetary loss versus a 0% yield savings account or bond. So, David, let's team up on, on Steve here for a second. I'm, I'm playing an you know, advocate, uh, devil's advocate, but something's different, it feels, this time around. I, I haven't had the same you know up-close, first-row experience that you guys have had over the last couple of decades, but I've been around the industry for also about 20 years, and it feels like now other stores of value are behaving similarly. There's been a boom in fine art prices. Uh, there's been a boom in other forms of jewelry and watches arguably are jewelry and, and so in, in, in precious metals for example and I think it's more than just an inflation hedge generically it seems to be something also about that's been accelerated not created by but accelerated by the pandemic people wanting to not necessarily be tied into a fiat currency into a currency of a particular country you know before we had the gold standard is tied into gold but now currencies are basically based on the faith of of that of the issuing uh, country there's anything standing behind that paper those dollar bills so are things really different dave do you agree with steve or do you agree kind of with my little devil's advocacy position that really watches have now become a currency thanks thanks dev um yeah no i i, I certainly agree with um with steve in a way i also see it from a perspective of again with it's it's just two different type of like his, the watches that Steve deals with are a, a bit different than for example your standard Rolex Submariner right so um you know there now my I I personally never say to a client buy this watch it's going to be an investment I always say if you buy this watch just buy what you love first I actually had to say to a client this morning. He said, I, I, I'm in love with the Rolex Daytona, but I just don't know. It, you know, it seems like everybody's wearing the watch. What do you think? And, of course, anybody wants to make a $40,000 sale, but at the same time, if you're in a relationship-based business like real estate and luxury watches, it's it's in your best interest to advise your client to the best of your ability in that way, saying to him, it's not really an investment because I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen in six months because everything has gone up. Mm-hmm. Real estate right now, for example, in South Florida right, fair is point. through fair the point. roof. Right. 
uh, same, same thing with watches. Uh, if, for example, if you bought a watch last week and I try to go buy that same watch, you know, tomorrow, the price is not going to be the same even if I attempt to buy it wholesale. So um, I, I do think a lot of it is being generated by the same network of dealers where it's, it's, it's not essentially exchanging from, you know, your dealer to your end consumer right away. So it's, that's why it's a tricky line between an, an, an actual investment compared to maybe an actual uh, inflated item at that time of purchase. So it really varies. All right. Well, we're going to take another break here. We're going to come back and talk about tokenization, NFT, uh, asset hiding, and so forth. We'll go back to over to Rolex, Mike, Ziv Tamir, Tamir, sorry. And we'll also take a couple callers. You've been very patient on the line. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. Rich man plain, plain. Bang, bang with the wood grain. Tell a port, know the pilot by the name. Uh, eight hour flight out of Spain. Gonna, gonna got a little fame. No, uh, ain't no cap my game. Equal Footing with Dove Tusman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Back on Equal Footing, I'm Dove Tuzman here with my guests, Steve Halleck, David Salamanca, and Ziv Tamir. We're down the rabbit hole talking about the peculiar inner workings of the ultra-luxury timepiece industry. If you think this is just a niche conversation, think again. Market-wise, it's, the Wall Street Journal recently estimated that if you added up the value of high-end second-hand, meaning already-owned, Watches, not the ones that are sitting in a in a uh, an authorized dealer's glass case, but ones that are sitting at home in in safes and safety deposit boxes and on the risks of collectors. If you added up all that value, it would be the third largest capitalization of any company in the world. So there's a ton of value out there in existing collections. Of course, watches, mechanical watches, have been around. For hundreds and hundreds of years, we'll, someday we'll do another show on the origin of the construction of mechanical watches. I think it goes back all the way to the 16th century. And this is an industry that's exploded recently. And as Steve pointed out in the last segment, these watches often uh, enhance in value over time. They don't really disintegrate. They're made out of hard metal. They're well-constructed. They're air-sealed in most cases. So you, you have a piece that once it's purchased, it can be around for De- decades, even even centuries. All right. Caller on line three, you've been very patient. Ricardo from Sao Paulo. Is that right? You're calling from Sao Paulo. Line three, are you there? Oh, 
I think we we lost Ricardo. All right. Well, we're going to see if uh, if he can call call back in. Um, Ziv, aka Rolex Mike. Let's let's go a little more controversial here. There also is speculation. There was a recent auction last year in the height of the pandemic where watches were being sold. I think it was a Philips auction, if I'm not mistaken, at you know 50 percent, 100 percent higher than uh, than expected prices. And there is speculation out there that this is a way for you know if you are a Chinese industrialist, for example, that's afraid that the government's going to expropriate your assets, or you're a Russian tycoon that is afraid that you might be on the outs with the authorities there. Uh, or even someone just trying to, uh, you know, generally kind of hide their assets from some tax authority. There, there is, there is some, somewhat of a darker view of some one of the, you know, drivers in, in the market. Is is any of that stuff r- real in, in in your view? Uh, as far as I think you, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, I, as far as. Um, my experience, uh, from what I've experienced, that I don't really, um, um, I don't really see that at all. Um, it might be uh, just because of my nature. I'm currently in law school right now, so I'm very careful to uh, to uh, play by the rules. And um, and if anything seems shady, uh, I don't deal with those types of clients. So it might uh, might not be that my experience. But like, what I'll say is, is that there is a tokenization of like you know having that security. And that safety, and that while having fun and investing, you know. Um, and to add, like, like when it comes to these high-end watches, you know, when you're dealing with like, um, you can actually follow the market very, very carefully. And and if you see what's going on in the market, you can actually predict what what the market is going to be uh, tomorrow. You might be wrong. The market might crash, like um, you know, like uh, Steve mentioned, in, which was in 2008. I remember that very clearly. But, like, if you're in December of 2020 and Rolex announces that they're discontinuing the Rolex Hulk, you can pretty much call all your clients and and let them know to buy that Hulk while it's still $12,500. Okay, but to, but the to very be, next day is 20 But to be fair, Ziv, it no. doesn't have to be anything nefarious or illegal or untoward if, I mean, maybe it was the way I phrased the question, but you could also just simply have someone who's concerned about holding real estate in their given country. Maybe they're even concerned about their banking system or they just don't trust – in these countries that are evolving quickly, there have been massive taxes that are introduced overnight or asset expropriation. So it is yeah. it is reasonable for there, you know, to be an asset. Absolutely. If it's more efficient to hold that asset, I mean, a gold bar. Maybe one of you can educate me on the value. Like I imagine you could hold a Richard Meal, for example. Some of these watches go for a million dollars. You could hold a million dollar Richard Meal in a safe. It could it could, uh, you know, it, what would take up. Uh, you know, two inches by two inches of space or something. How how many gold bars would you need to have in that safe to you know equate a million dollars? Now I understand. Now I understand your question. And and, um, and actually, yes, that is uh, you know uh, that is very apropos uh, for what's going on right now. Is um, there's you know I, I'm seeing that very often where there's people. Um, for example, I was just recently helping a collector. Um, you know, sell. He had a collection of 600 watches, wow. and he needed to sell them because he was he'd prefer buying, um, you know, a few Richard Mills and some expensive APs and paddocks, and and, car- and only have like 20 watches to carry around instead of carrying 600 watches. You know, wherever you know, um, whenever. He how, how much was um, that? Out of curiosity, how much roughly is that 600 watch collection worth? 
So the uh, I only dealt with uh, with uh, with a fraction of that collection. Um, and in fact, we're still in the process um, of going through it. Um, but that uh, 600 watch collection, put it this way: each watch, uh, there, I don't think there's anything that was less than than three thousand dollars. And probably the most uh, and probably the uh, most expensive watch that he wanted to sell was uh, were in the 20s or 30s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, and that was the, the, that, the, that's the bulk of his collection between like five thousand and twenty thousand dollars, and he just wants to move into watches right, that so are hundred mi- millions of dollars of value. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's take let's take the this uh, very patient call. I think he's dialed back in. Ricardo from São Paulo. Boa noite. Can you hear us this time? All right. I guess we're having a technical difficulty with that call. So let's take caller on. Uh, he, he, Ricardo from São Paulo. Your your robotic. Um, maybe call back on a different line. Uh, so we're going to switch here. Line two, you're on the air. How are you, sir? Good evening. Stan, nice to meet <laughs> you. Pre- Always a pleasure to hear you. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. <laughs> Listen. What's your question? Uh, let me, let me uh, as I normally do, and I know something about the antiquities market because I'm in it. I used to trade in paintings and gold and this and that. Uh, I don't agree with your fellow friends there in terms of... Uh, as a commodity, to you, let me put it this way. I know a man who did a business deal, and he owned two or three Picassos, two Renoirs, a Degas, a Miro, and about 10 or 12 paintings worth about $80 million. And he was doing a business deal, and he told him, I don't have enough capital, but I'll put up the collection as part of the collateral. Mm-hmm. And he was justified to tell him what it was worth, and the bank took it as part of the deal. Mm-hmm. When he closed mm-hmm. on sure. his business, he goes, I must tell you, I know many of them, some Americans, will not do that with watches. Interesting. I'm sorry to so, tell you, that is Steve, not the case. Steve, you've been around the industry for 20 years. To Stan's point, are, are watches becoming a more accepted asset in terms of collateral-based financing, in your view? Not in, big, well, in terms of big financing, well, no. Well, I'm asking one of our guests, Steve Haller. Oh, okay, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Go ahead. I, I must say, I honestly don't know. I do think that uh, watches have a particularly um, who mentioned exactly in your Richard Meal versus Gold Bars analogy of how much value can be locked up in such a small object. Um, they are particularly easy to make disappear and uh, therefore uh, have some properties that are not ideal for collateral or things like that. Um, but uh, but I don't have any personal experience uh, with with that sort of thing. I definitely do in art, and I can speak to that sort of point. You know, we all know that art and uh, houses and and things like that um, are are obviously acceptable. Uh, and even cars, I know of people uh, taking uh, large loans against car collections, and I don't know of it uh, in the watch world. Yeah. I think it's just starting, based on my exposure in the industry, it, it is starting, and I think it's going to it's going to happen more. And I think this this word that, that Ziv used earlier of tokenization is going to be a part of that. We're going to get to that word in a minute. But first, let's see if Ricardo from Sao Paulo is finally able to be heard. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, this is Ricardo from, from uh, calling you from Brazil. So uh, so here's, here's my take on the show tonight. I'm a... Uh, uh, I, I love this show. Thanks, thanks for the for the subject today. And 
But I think, just like I was, I'm probably about a year ago. I started um, realizing that what I knew about watches was totally wrong. So uh, you know, I have a feeling most of your audience right now is wondering what's going on. Where is this stuff? that they're talking about happening, you know, and you guys are from New York, so that's a different, that's a whole different world, you know, but for the for the guys in Texas or in California or in Seattle, this is still probably news. But let me tell you uh, a couple of, you know, a couple of cases that's just why I got into this. And by the way, Steve, you do a great job. I follow you on YouTube and I follow you on Instagram as well. A uh, great part of the stuff that I Thank learned you. Is, is you explained to me. Uh, but... Uh, you know, I met a friend over a year ago, and I was wearing my Breitling watch, which proudly wearing, thinking that, man, I'm so cool. I got a $16,000, you know, watch on my wrist. That shows who I am kind of thing. That shows my status. And whatever it is that people think about, I mean, maybe that wasn't exactly what I was thinking, but I'm, I'm just trying to make a point here. And then this friend, you know, you know, at, that knew about watches said, oh, okay, so you're Breitling and everything, and, and uh and he basically proceeded to explain to me while wearing a Richard Mill, which I didn't know what it was back then. You know, I just thought it was very fancy and very big. Uh, that I had paid too much for my watch. And then he said, "Well, for example, this one here, I paid you know hundreds of thousands, I don't know over a hundred thousand uh, dollars, and uh, and this was very inexpensive because the watch now is worth you know less than a year. It's worth thirty percent more." And uh, I thought he was a real geek. I thought he was really, well, this guy is an exception to the role, right? He's very successful and so on. Well, fast forward a year later, a few months ago, uh, I am in this conference environment, conference call environment, with all this, you know, family offices of, of people that are worth, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And I happen to mention that, hey, look, that Richard Mills went up in value, you know, this, you know, it's now, I, I would say, you know, for me now, I consider those things an asset. And they all sort of look at me like, hello, yeah, of course it's an asset. I mean, you didn't know that? Uh, it's just like, so, you know, the point here is that, you know, it seems to me that, first of all, the general population doesn't know about this stuff, which is, which, which is, it's amazing because it makes the market and the possibilities influenceless. Uh, you know, second, the people there are very successful. They do not go and buy watches because of vanity. Not, not in my experience. They do that because of vanity. They do that for emotional reasons. They do that because these are beautiful pieces of art. But they also do that knowing that, hey, if I have to sell this tomorrow, you know, I will make either the same or more money, you know, than I put in, which, you know, is the characteristics of most successful people. So with that, with all that story, my question to you is that for all the, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that may be listening to the show that have in their, in their safe a nice watch or got a, or got a uh, you know, a gold Rolex after retirement thinking that was the, you know, the, the coolest thing in the world. What do we do with our Omegas? What do we do with our bridlings? Well, we do all this stuff that we bought, think that was, that was great, and now we learn that we, had to, we, we should have spent a lot more but bought into a very selected, reduced number of brands. Ricardo, really appreciate your uh, your question. Muito obrigado. Uh, so let me break that down into two. But David, let let's take let's take you first. And uh, to to Ricardo's question, do you have clients 
that are coming. I mean, Zip mentioned one as well, but how how often are you having clients that are buying their first watch with you versus they've made a bunch of purchases over the years, they've learned more about the industry, and now they're like, you know, trading up or kind of getting more sophisticated. How does that break out for you? So I, I believe a couple of years ago, I would say three, four years ago, um, I, I believe now the Internet has made clients sort of more aware, more knowledgeable. Everything is, is easy access online. You can research the forums, and there's so many points of access, you know, access points that you can get information from, from all types of all brands, YouTube being a, a big one now with um, you know, a lot of watch dealers having their own, uh, their own, um, their own channel. And, um, you know, before, I just don't think people were educated enough to understand that, you know, if you walk into a Breitling boutique and you pay retail for a brand new watch, um, it's not necessarily going to hold the same value as if you buy a Rolex. And, you know, the same thing is happening now, but now, people are getting smarter and people are understanding that they don't have to walk into those boutiques anymore because if you just do a quick search online there's 30, 35, 40, 45% off or sometimes even more on those brands. Yeah, and and the way I for listeners this, that, that are just getting exposed to this there are sites like Chrono24 for example that act as kind of pricing. They're not, oh, it's not always reliable like any relatively uh, illiquid market or a nascent market, but it does have kind of give you a sense of the price movement week to week, even day to day. In addition to that, uh, you're, you should know from, you know, from the beginning, if you can buy a watch brand new at 45 to 50% off, you can imagine the kind of depreciation that you're going to take once you put it on the wrist and it no longer has stickers and it's no longer brand new. So that's that's not happening with you know AP Paddock or Rolex, and that's the major difference because you know there you know brands like Omega, Breitling, and, and and other brands they're great brands, and I sell those brands, but I always make sure to tell my clients and advise them not to buy those watches at a full retail um, situation because then that's when the huge depreciation loss comes in. Right. Not let, it's let, not a bad watch, but. Sure. Before, appreciate that. Before we get to before we go to our last break, Steve, uh, the other element in Hikarjo's com- comment was about the driver for the purchase, and you kind of alluded to this at the outset of the show. But how would you break out roughly the the impulse for purchase from one of your clients in terms of things like vanity and status? Uh, versus store of value slash investment versus just straight artistic slash aesthetic uh, inspiration so or, or appreciation. If you if you and I'm sure there are other factors like the fact that you know maybe someone's spouse is saying I'd really think you'd look good with that on. But if you broke it down into those three general areas, kind of very rough again uh, thumbnails, but kind of you know status symbol, store of value, and artistic appreciation what are driving your clients to purchase yeah so uh sort of as i alluded to earlier uh the in my very specific niche um status isn't much although i have to say it's it's getting more if you uh, include internet status 
Um, because it used to be you'd buy one of these and nobody you knew would know what it was. Nobody in the world would know what it is. Right. So you get basically no status with it. Uh, but now for people who are on Instagram or something like that, uh, you can post a picture and the watch community, you know, now, now all the people in the world who do know what it is are looking and will give you big thumbs up and likes and stuff like that. So that, that has become, I would say, more of a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my specific niche really is for people, you know, there's all sorts of different customers in terms of uh, how much research they're interested in putting into things uh, and, of course, what price range they're in and, and, and all that stuff. Um, but uh, basically, my stuff uh, is, is something that nobody ever buys as their first watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it, it takes the type of guy who is going to uh, go through a lot of watches, like our caller said, maybe buys the Breitling, buys the Rolex, buys this, buys that, uh, either either sells them or keeps them but moves on and is kind of refining his taste and doing a ton of research and going way down the rabbit hole. Uh, and then maybe eventually they'll get to my crazy stuff if they uh, go particularly hard into it. Uh, and, and so I would say that's definitely, if you make the full journey, that's the biggest part of it. Um, and in terms of the store of value, uh, I, I was I was just explaining this to, to somebody I had lunch with today. Um, there's kind of a there's sort of like a hard threshold between I want this and I'm buying this, um, and it's this kind of switch that you have to get past, which is of course uh, the job of a, a good salesman, I guess uh, sometimes at least. Um, but uh, obviously, the more liquid, the more perceived liquid, the, the more active the market, um, the less steep that mountain is uh, to get over to the point that, you know, on the very hot brands, it's just sort of like, I want this, I buy this. You don't have to get anybody over anything because they know the next day if they decide they don't want it, you know, they're out nothing or maybe they'll even make money or, or whatever versus, um, you know, I'm used to selling things in very illiquid and slow markets, and so it's, it's a, it takes more uh, effort from the buyer. Uh, they have right. to want it that much more, and they have to be that much more secure in their purchase for themselves for all the other reasons to get past that hump of gotcha. actually so wiring we're, money. We're going we're gonna to go to our last break. Before we do that, we're going to take a, a listener's quick question around the horn here. Uh, one of our listeners wants to know the average price of the piece that each pieces that each of the guests sell. So, Ziv, let's start with you. Just throw out at, what is the average price for uh, one watch that you sell? I'm currently dealing with an average of around twenty thousand. Okay, David, what's the average price? Twenty thousand for for Ziv. Just to give us to, to the listeners who aren't in the industry to give a sense of the the price tags here. Uh, a rough ballpark around eighteen five. Okay, that's pretty specific. You got your accounting in order. And Steve, what would be your average price per piece per customer, or not per customer, per piece? I, I'd say this year it's probably closer to seventy-five or eighty thousand. Okay, so we got a couple different parts of the market uh, represented. Okay, we're going to take our last break, and we'll be back on equal footing talking about wrist capital, the peculiar inner workings of the ultra luxury timepiece industry. We'll be right back. And his face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game, boy You gotta learn to play it right 
talk about an important sponsor for equal footing last but not least manhattan medical it's not by accident this show has been talking a lot you've heard the 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 pronoun uh him and and, uh, and his and we've got three male guests well that is because the watch industry is dominated and, and purchase uh, value by by men and that's the reality today and, and it is changing at the margin but this is a very important message for men listening and that is to address directly in your life the emotionally painful reality that ultimately hits more than 50% of us at some point in our life, and that's erectile dysfunction, being unable to have enjoyable sex. It affects you. It affects your partner. Manhattan Medical utilizes a new and effective gains wave therapy methodology. You can read a lot about gains wave on the Internet. It can help you achieve excellent results does not involve expensive blue pills. It is non-invasive. It is surgery-free. It is painless. With Manhattan Medical, there are no side effects, and for most patients, wonderful results. Gains wave therapy from Manhattan Medical can help you. You can call from anywhere in the world. You don't have to be in Manhattan, and if you mention Equal Footing, you'll get a free consultation that is a couple hundred dollar value. A close friend of mine introduced me to this sponsor because he said, you've got to talk about this with your listeners. He's in his mid-80s, and he has gotten back a functional and emotionally healthy sex life. Call now for a free consultation. Manhattan Medical, 888-EDQR9, 888-EDQR9, or 888-332-8739. That's 888-332-8739. Call now. Gains Wave Therapy by Manhattan Medical. Put an end to that painful experience in your life, erectile dysfunction. We'll be right back. I've been caught. All right, you're on equal footing. I'm here with Steve Halleck, Ziv Tamir, David Salamanca, talking about the high-end horological market, high-end timepieces, this crazy $6 billion a year business. That's just watches over $5,000 price tag. We talked about the fact that this is kind of a new alternative asset class. It's an inflation hedge. It's an aesthetic, artistic collector's uh, area. Uh, it's it's a lot of things, and it's exploding. It's an industry that is growing between 50 and 100% per annum in different segments. We're almost out of time. I just want to read a listener's question here about this topic of tokenization that we talked on earlier. It touches on that with NFTs. I'm going to ask one of you to explain what that is. Listener says, there seems to be, there seems to be a bifurcation in the economy, and the, among the top 1%, there seems to be a lot of cash, especially among a lot of international people. And they're investing th- in things I don't understand, like NFTs. And it seems like watches is another one of those items listening to this program. Why not just invest your money in the markets like normal people? <laughs> I love that question. Ziv, wh- why, why not just – if you're looking at watches at anything other than art – why not just to invest in the in the market like normal people? And we, we literally have twenty seconds, so give us give us your best shot. A lot of a, a lot of my customers are very very highly invested in the market, and they're looking. They don't want to keep all their eggs in one basket. They absolutely, um, they, you know, they just want to buy as many assets as possible. Um, and watches is another one that's constantly going up in value, and we're constantly following the market for our customers and 
They're calling us on a daily basis, asking us what's going on. Um, and um, it's, another, it's just another asset that you can hold and keep in your safe. Sounds good. Diversified portfolio. Steve Halleck from TikToking. Thank you. David Salamanca from Salamanca's Watches. Thank you. Ziv Tamir from RocksOnClocks.com. Thank you. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Going to the jeweler, bust the AP, yeah. Sliding on the water like a jet ski, yeah. I'm trying to fuck you in your bestie, yeah.